0: a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and join me from D.C.'s Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going?
1: Uh, I don't know, Natalie. There was some pretty bummer news this week. Uh, I don't know if you knew this. A-Rod and J-Lo have officially announced their split.
0: So we've we've been talking about this off air, and I am personally devastated by this. (laughs) But Jimmy, you're telling me that there's a SCOTUS angle here, and you've refused to tell me what it is off air. So I'm asking you, what is the SCOTUS angle?
1: If you just look hard enough, you can find a scotus single on pretty much every news story out there. But the one here is that A-Rod and J-Lo actually in 2019 solicited some marriage advice that perhaps didn't stick from one person who came from a pretty well-known egalitarian marriage for 50 years. That was Justice, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had actually... Given them a little word of advice in uh, 2019 over how to how to make things work but sadly she's not around anymore to give them any marriage counseling so i i can only assume that that is why the uh, the partnership is now dissolved but there it is I, there's your i thing. had
0: completely forgotten that oh my goodness <laughs> that that's a really good point i'm still holding out hope that somehow they reconcile and uh put some of that advice to good use personally <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, moving on, um, there was some other kind of minor updates to the Supreme Court this week. There's a lot of news that we're going to talk about later in the show, but just kind of yes, some housekeeping show. items. Yes, absolutely. Uh, some c- kind of housekeeping items is that we won't actually be getting back into the Supreme Court's courtroom for in-person live oral arguments until next term at the earliest, which is uh, kind of a disappointing thing. The Supreme Court has announced... but. Obviously understandable given the current circumstances. The Supreme Court announced that the April and May sessions are also going to be remote. So next term is going to be the earliest time that we can all kind of jam into the press alcove and uh, see some in-person oral arguments there.
0: I have to imagine it's just easier to kind of just keep going with the flow that they're doing right now. And I have to wonder if they'll make any changes when they go back in October to, you know, given the new format they've been using. So... Interested to see what happens.
1: Yeah. I mean, is Justice Thomas going to still be asking questions when we're back in the open format and like everyone's talking over each other? Because I know he does not like that and uh, thinks that uh, things should be a little bit more orderly in oral arguments. But
0: looking to October, though, um, at least right now, there seems to be some suggestions that we'll still also be seeing Justice Breyer despite the uh, very hot spotlight on retirement watch <laughs> that is on him right now.
1: <laughs> that's right. Uh, Natalie, you actually tipped me off to some new reporting by kind of one of the most plugged in SCOTUS clerk insiders out there, and that's David Latt, formerly of uh, Above the Law, who's reporting that Breyer's hired four clerks, which is the full slate of clerks, for the upcoming October twenty-one or 2021 term, which, in his words, strongly su- is suggests that he's not going Anywhere, so that's going to disappoint a lot of people, I would assume.
0: So, so David actually looked at um, the last four justices, the last like four recent justices to retire from the court. Sandra uh, justices Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, John Paul Stevens, and Anthony Kennedy, and only Kennedy in 2018 had actually fired a full slate before retiring, and all the others had some sort of like anomaly in their like general like hiring clerk hiring uh, status. So I don't, I still say anything that's possible. You can't like, you know, completely, you know, look into the crystal ball just with this, but it does seem like he's kind of, you know, filled up those thoughts and is planning to, you know, be busy on the bench next October.
1: Much to the chagrin of, of groups like, uh, demand justice is the progressive group. That's now launching an online petition, that reads: Tell Justice Breyer, put the country first. Don't risk your legacy to an uncertain political future. Retire now. And they're like driving around a billboard that says Breyer retire. And you know, it it just goes to show these judges, these justices on the Supreme Court, you can't necessarily tell them what to do. I mean, they have life tenure under the Constitution, and a lot of people seem to be forgetting that. No matter how much public pressure you put on a member of the Supreme Court, it's really up to them what they decide to do um, with their career. And uh, Justice Breyer has kind of been out here um, under the political spotlight not announcing his uh, retirement. He just gave another uh, speech, another public appearance, um, this time at the American Bar Association's international law section yesterday. And the host kind of promised he's not making any news during the appearance. And he pretty much made good on that and uh, avoided any retirement talk. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you might be onto to something that we could potentially see him... I'm still sitting on the bench come October. But this is all part of a big conversation around, you know, Democrats and progressives trying to take back control of the Supreme Court and put justices on the Supreme Court. And there was some pretty big news to that effect um, today and last night. Actually, it was just announced.
0: Yeah. So I saw something about some new legislation that would potentially expand the court. Jimmy, do you want to kind of break down the details for that one?
1: Sure thing. There is a group of um, Democrats in both the House and Senate who today introduced the Judiciary Act of 2021, which would bring the total number of Supreme Court justices to 13. Um, it would add four seats to the court, giving Biden the opportunity to swing the court from its current six to three majority of Republican appointees to a uh, seven to six majority of Democratic ones. So the group behind this new bill consists of Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Um, The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler of New York, uh, Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia, and Representative Mondaire Jones of New York. Now, it goes without saying that this is very controversial legislation, even within the Democratic caucus, to say nothing of how fiercely opposed Republicans are to the idea of expanding the Supreme Court or packing the Supreme Court, as they would say, to kind of counteract the court's current conservative majority. And, you know, the, the the lawmakers behind this latest legislative effort are making no bones about the fact that it is indeed kind of a form of political payback for the way Republicans have been so successful at, you know, putting this new conservative majority on the Supreme Court from the blockade of, you know, Obama's pick, uh, Merrick Garland, to the uh, the the push of Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court in the in the dying days of the twenty twenty election, even after that precedent was set in twenty sixteen with Garland.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems like an ambitious piece of legislation in in many ways. Um, you know the the bringing the total number of Justice thirteen, I think would be the the largest the the cor- the bench has ever been in its history. Um, but as you said, you know this is a controversial issue. This has become like a lightning rod issue. We've heard, we talk, we've heard about court reform over and over and over um, since basically the last, uh, since Amy Coney Barrett was uh, nominated and then put on the bench. Um, and this legislation is actually coming right on the heels of um, President Biden actually announcing a commission specifically to look at Supreme Court reform. Uh, he did that on Friday creating it with an executive order it's a 36 member group um that will look basically at ways to potentially reform the court and of course you know this is the big lightning rod issue right packing the court this is the big issue that everyone talks about but it's not the only way to potentially reform the court so this this commission is going to be looking at other things you know looking at the length and of service for the justices the turnover of justices in the court um yes the membership and the size but also you know the court's case selection rules practices uh we've you know we'll talk about it a little bit more we know there's the shadow docket is a big issue that's on lawmakers minds right now
1: and i think that's kind of the central irony here right is that um, this very controversial and aggressive approach to actually packing the Supreme Court with additional Biden appointees actually has the strongest arguments in favor of its legality by statute, right? Because, you know, the Constitution says nothing about the size of the Supreme Court. So there is actually no bar, constitutional bar to, say, a slim majority in Congress actually via legislation, via a statute, um, expanding the size of the court to 13, whereas some of these more um, broadly supported measures like life tenure for justices, for instance, those, um, many constitutional scholars argue, would actually require a constitutional amendment, which is much harder to get done than just a simple majority upvote in Congress. Now, that's not to say that this new legislation has an easy road ahead of it. In fact, it's got pretty much um, slim to zero chances of success in that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, members of the Democratic caucus are pretty wary of eliminating the filibuster and voting to expand the size of the Supreme Court on a 51 vote basis. And they can't and Democrats can't afford to lose a single vote to even get any of this done. And I understand that just this morning, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expressing um, kind of wariness around even the idea of bringing this to the floor, um, and that's in the House, to say nothing of the Senate. But yeah, let's talk more about this commission and what we could potentially see out of it. I know that, for instance, Representative Jones, who was who is among the um, lawmakers that are now pushing for the court expansion legislation, he was kind of critical of Biden for not including, you know, vocal court packing advocates among the thirty-six members. It's a pretty Um, rarefied group of legal elites and academics that make up this new commission. So the idea is that they'll probably be a little bit more um, hesitant to embrace some of these very what are considered to be extreme or radical measures around court packing. Uh, Obviously, the big context here is that court packing has been tried before, right? Franklin Delano Roosevelt did it in the 30s, and he was railroaded by his own party, and the measure was ultimately failed, and uh, he was widely criticized across the ideological spectrum. And it's been a political lightning, lightning rod since. So the idea that this new commission is going to embrace something like that, I think, is a little bit far-fetched when you look at who's actually sitting on it.
0: Yeah. So, so in terms of who's actually sitting on it, um, the two co-chairs are going to be former White House counsel Bob Bauer and Christina Rodriguez, a, a former senior U.S. Department of Justice official. Um Other notable commission members include retired D.C. Circuit Judge Thomas Griffith, uh, former acting U.S. Solicitor General Walter Dellinger, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund President Sherilyn Eiffel, who has uh, certainly been making headlines for a lot of the work she's been doing lately, and prominent Harvard University constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe, also, you know, big name in in you know the supreme court bar world right um so a lot of legal heavyweights here that are going to be kind of coming together and their task um you know is is basically to come out with a report within 180 days of their first public meeting i don't know when that meeting's going to be um but you know that's a that's a pretty you know Big challenge, right? To 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 take all of these, you know, hot button issues on reform and you know potential ways to 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 kind of address issues that are coming up with the court, um, and try to come up with some sort of blueprint or hopeful blueprint, anyway.
1: And let's also remember, like the genesis of this new commission, right? Biden announced this in kind of the tail end of the twenty twenty um, election, as both. Democrats and Republicans were really pressuring him to just say whether or not he supported the idea of expanding the court, you know, as that became like a big political talking point during the Barrett uh, confirmation proceedings. And he really didn't want to announce his position on it because he didn't want to alienate grassroots progressives, but he also didn't want to give further... Um, firepower uh, to Republicans who were accusing him of supporting court packing. And let's remember that Biden, you know, he's a former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee who's expressed um, wariness around the idea. He said he's not a fan of the idea of court packing. There's actually a recently resurfaced clip of him saying as a senator in 1983 that Roosevelt's um, court packing plan was a bonehead idea. And so that's all to say that you know, this group being given six months, looking at the membership of the group, looking at who the president is that, you know, formed this task force, a lot of it could just be optics um, and lip service to the idea of entertaining these reforms. But as you as you say, there are, are steps that it could take short of expanding the court. Whether or not any of them will be successful, it's too early to say. But you mentioned something pretty um, interesting early on, and that is... Um, Potential changes to the Supreme Court's rules and procedures. One issue that people have been very critical of the Supreme Court about in recent. Weeks And in fact, over the course of the last year has been its high profile rulings in shadow docket cases. These are the cases that don't go through, you know, the full process of briefing and argument. And, you know, in February, there was the first ever congressional hearing about some of the issues around the shadow docket. And just on Friday after we recorded last week's episode, um, there was another pretty big development in a shadow docket case suggesting that, you know, this issue really isn't going away.
0: Yeah, we had another one of those midnight rulings uh, that are coming, you know, kind of the late night. It was an unsigned 5-4 decision uh, on Friday. Uh, Although, so it's unsigned, but we kind of know how the justices uh, kind of... shook out on this issue, which was about um, California's restrictions on in-home religious gatherings. Uh, the opinion struck down um, these restrictions over the sense of the three liberal justices and Chief Justice John Roberts. It is the fifth time the High Court has weighed in on the state's uh, COVID-19 rules since the start of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, in COVID-19 regulations have you know, made up a big part of the Supreme Court's shadow docket over the last year. But there have also been other issues as well. There's been death penalty cases that the court has decided, you know, in late night orders. Um, there have been uh, orders and decisions by the Supreme Court on controversial Trump policies during the last administration. Um, so this is something that's been getting a lot more attention lately as the court has kind of increased its activity on. Um, when it comes to handing down short, unreasoned, unsigned um, decisions in pretty hot button cases on shortened timelines. And so a lot of journalists um, and uh, court watchers and even lawmakers now want to see the Supreme Court kind of slow down, bring some transparency to how it's deliberating in some of these cases. Um, I mentioned the uh, congressional hearing in February because the argument is that the deliberation needs to happen out in the open so that the public can have a better acceptance and understanding of how the court is reaching these conclusions. And we potentially saw a a thinly veiled reference to some of the shadow docket controversy. And I think in um, Justice Kagan's dissent where she kind of voices her displeasure on Friday night with the majority for its reliance on separate opinions in unreasoned orders. (laughs) So maybe she's saying like, hey, you know, there's been too many of these cases here where you're not really going through and explaining your reasoning. And if you're just going to keep citing back to these same unreasoned orders, that's not really giving you the authority that you're actually claiming. And she writes, because the majority continues to disregard law and facts alike, I respect I respectfully dissent from this latest per curiam decision, she wrote. So some pretty interesting updates to the shadow docket there, just to kind of talk about the actual substance of the case for just one second. Um, California appears to be getting the message. You mentioned you know, this is like the fifth time that the Supreme Court has kind of taken it to task for its COVID-19 restrictions. And in a separate case um, on April 12th, uh, the governor, Gavin Newsom, he wrote a letter to the court saying that um, California has now... Uh, effective immediately uh, gotten rid of its capacity limits on places of worship um, that are now not mandatory but are strongly recommended. So they're basically saying we're tired of getting told what to do by the Supreme Court, uh, but alas, that's the, that's the update I have on that one. There's another interesting case that we are watching that the Supreme Court could potentially take action on as soon as tomorrow, actually, and that is in the long-running um, dispute over... What was the Trump administration's um, public charge rule? This is the controversial rule that's been deemed the immigrant wealth test. We're no longer in the Trump administration. So Natalie, can you just tell us what's left of this case and what's going on here?
0: Yeah, so... This case, as we've talked about before, um, as you mentioned, it was it's over this immigration uh, restriction that would restrict people f- who receive non-cash benefits like food stamps and Medicare from immigrating to the U.S. It came in under the Trump administration. The Biden administration has reversed course on its stance on this immigrant wealth test, essentially, and has stopped defending uh, the, the, the the test, which is currently before the Supreme Court. It was, you know scheduled for arguments uh, they're like nope we want out um, as I mentioned I think in the last ep- in one of the last episodes there are some uh, some lawmakers in other states who've wanted to, basically, you know, take the place of the government in some lower court proceedings. And now they're asking the Supreme Court to take the place of the federal government. Um, you know, Texas and a group of Republican states, they, they want permission to defend the rule uh, before the Supreme Court, rather than have this case tossed out or tossed back to the lower courts, which is, you know, we've, as we've said, is a potential for for it since the Biden administration has essentially pulled out.
1: This one's pretty interesting. Um, I I read through the application that the Republican states have filed in the Supreme Court, and basically the thrust of their argument was, you know, if, if the Biden administration wants to get rid of this rule, they have to actually go and repeal it. They can't just get rid of it by proxy by refusing to defend it in court. And so there's this, there's a a bunch of interesting questions surrounding the, you know, administrative law and the Administrative Procedure Act around, you know, how this is going to play out, and they are in fact asking the Supreme Court to actually reinstate the public charge rule um, in the in the interim while the litigation goes forward. But uh, like I said, we could, it's, it's, I think it's fully briefed at this point. Texas and other states that are launching the application, they've recent, they've recently filed their uh, reply brief. Um, and so now we're just awaiting uh, an action from the Supreme Court, which could take the form of another <laughs> shadow docket order, right? Um, this is in the form of an application as opposed to you know a petition. And so the Supreme Court in, in recent weeks and in months has tended to rule on those kind of later at night towards the end of the week. So stay tuned for that for sure.
0: Yes, they have the conference tomorrow, so hopefully we'll have an update right. uh, next week. But Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us this week. It's, I know we've, we've covered a lot of ground here.
1: That's right. And, and hopefully next week we'll have some, you know, maybe opinions to talk about. I know there will be oral arguments as well. Um, but uh, we are kind of approaching the end of the Supreme court term here. Um, it's been fun chatting with you, Natalie, this week. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
0: We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Chater and Danielle Smith. Our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and contributing reporters this week, Dave Simpson and Jack Carp. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.